When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello all, Eric here. So I thought I'd do something a little different for November, a series of interviews all centered around Jack the Ripper and Back to Back. We have traveled the shadowy streets of 1888 Whitechapel in the past, talking to authors who have not only given us general overviews of the case, but have also gotten into specific suspects. Well, this November I've got multiple authors lined up, all with their own unique takes on arguably the greatest murder mystery in history, multi-murder mystery. I hope you enjoy this Jack the Ripper series. By the way, some of what you will hear in the next few days is quite graphic, so listener discretion is advised. It is so great to welcome MJ Tro back to the show. He has graced our presence twice now, once for a chat about Elizabethan playwright and likely murder victim Kit Marlowe, and again to talk about what might have happened to the princes in the tower. He knows an awful lot about British history, and one of the topics he's written about extensively, Jack the Ripper. In 2009, he brought a new suspect, international attention, Robert Mann. His book on Mann is called Jack the Ripper, Quest for a Killer. Thanks for coming back. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be with you. So how far back does your interest in the Jack the Ripper murders go? Oh God! I, I think probably as a as a kid, I, I used to watch the the black and white movies on uh, on television, uh, and um, they always had a couple of, of old Jack the Ripper type films there. Then I would go to the uh, to, to the movie theater, uh, the pictures as we call them over here, and uh, I, I'd watch the uh, full color technical bloody version and they were all dreadful i mean great fun but <laughs> terrible history you you've got the picture at the start you've got uh, the east end of london where the murders took place you've got dry ice swarming around the bottom of the screen which is the london fog you've got a guy in a top hat uh, and cloak 
and he's walking through these streets. And then you see a girl uh, who is wearing a feather bow around her neck. She's usually blonde and bubbly. She's very attractive. She's about 20. She looks into the camera. Her face contorts. She screams. And then the credits come up. Something to do with the Ripper. And <laughs> everything about that is wrong. And subconsciously, I, I think I knew that. E even as a teenager watching these films, I, I knew that not much of that made sense, really. Right, right. Definitely not. So did you begin your research into the case with the intent to find a new suspect? Because the name Robert Mann is not a well-known one. Yeah, I, 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 th I think obviously because Whitechapel murders were unsolved uh, and are still unsolved, uh, there, there is that kind of fascination, isn't there? I mean, obviously, with true crime, if you've got people like, I don't know, um, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, and uh, you, 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 you know who these people are. They're, they're bizarre and they're fascinating in their own way. But once you've got a name, once you've got a face, uh, then that becomes a different kind of fascination. What is fascinating about Jack is that we don't know what that face is. We don't know his real name. And it, it's probably the greatest challenge that any true crime writer can take on board, to be honest. Can we get any further than legend and myth uh, to try and identify uh, who, who Jack really was? Uh, in 2008, my then literary agent said to me, well, can you find a new Jack? Is there somebody who nobody has put in the frame before? And I said, well, I don't know. That's a bit of a tall challenge, but uh, leave it with me. I'll get back to you. Uh, and uh, so I started research for real. And sure enough, uh, Robert Mann uh, did tick an awful lot of boxes, both uh, at the time, from the point of view, the very limited view of what people knew about serial killers, to today, when obviously we know a great deal more. The boxes were ticked uh, then as now. Right, right. So you introduce in your book Robert Mann, shortly after a woman named Annie Millwood is admitted into Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary on Saturday, January 25th, 1888, months before the canonical five murders. Can you talk about Annie, how she found herself at the infirmary, and how she might have met Robert Mann? Sure. Um, Annie Millwood was a, a prostitute uh, working in Whitechapel, which is in the East End of London. Your listeners, I suspect, won't know the area at all. And of course, it's changed enormously. Like any capital city, there's constant rebuilding going on. And a little thing called World War II didn't help because a lot of the buildings that Jack would have known were completely flattened by bombing in the 1940s. Uh, so it's very difficult now to find the sites uh, of the Ripper murders uh, and to be exactly sure where Annie Millwood would have plied her trade. But most of these prostitutes worked in the open. They offered their services in the streets. 
Very few of them had permanent lodgings. And uh, she had the bad luck to uh, run into three toughs uh, who decided to have a bit of fun with Annie and to beat her up, basically. Uh, she was sexually assaulted. She was physically, seriously assaulted. Uh, and she staggered to the nearest hospital, uh, which was the Whitechapel Workhouse Hospital. A workhouse uh, was a building for the desperately poor. Uh, now, of course, we have in Britain the, the National Health Service uh, and you have various forms of Medicare. There was nothing like that at all in London in the 1880s. So Annie Millwood goes to the only place where she would be treated free by a doctor or a nurse. They patched her up. And one of the people who worked uh, in the mortuary part of that workhouse was Robert Mann. Uh, with serial killers, there is usually a trigger. There's usually something which clicks in the mind of the serial killer and sets him on the path of his crimes. And I think the sight of Annie Millwood, bleeding as she was, having been beaten up as she had been, having been sexually assaulted as she had been, I think that was the trigger. I think that's what sent man on his killing spree. So, so what's his background? Is there a lot out there about Robert Mann? Not all that much, and this is the problem. Uh, in, in a way, it's why he got away with his crimes, because he is Mr. Anonymous. Uh, an awful lot of the uh, characters who have been put forward as being Jack the Ripper are amazingly colourful. They're larger than life. They're, they're doctors, they're politicians, they're associated with the royal family. And none of that makes any sense at all. Serial killers like Jack are not high profile. They are Mr. Ordinary, the kind of guy you pass in the street and you wouldn't notice him twice. So it's very difficult to find information on Robert Mann, uh, but I was able to, to find from various records uh, that he was born in the 1830s. His father was a weaver, uh, and weavers in the 1830s were just going into a very sharp economic decline. Because of the coming of machines and factories, it meant that nobody was bothering to spend money um, on individually made goods anymore. They were simply buying them cheaply and mass produced from the factories. So Robert Mann's father, who was also Robert Mann, uh, his fortunes went down and down, and he had to take his family into the workhouse. Now, these workhouses were all over the country. Uh, the nearest one was in Whitechapel itself, along what was then called Baker's Row. And um, they were grim. Uh, in fact, the, the people who lived in them called them the Bastilles, uh, after the terrible French prison which was pulled down during the revolution in 1789. Um, you had to be desperate. You, you had to have no means of income at all to go into the workhouse. Uh, and you were allowed out from time to time to look for work. It was a prison regime. Families were separated. Uh, adult males, adult females, girls, boys uh, were, were in different wards. They weren't allowed to mix even at mealtimes. There was to be no talking at mealtimes. And they did basic menial things like um, picking oakum, which is the, the stuff uh, that uh, rope, thick 
white rope is is made from uh, or they made um, mail bags something like that it was hard physical monotonous work and everybody hated it but it meant you had a bed for the night and it meant you had food uh, and therefore it was possible to survive and thousands of people went into that particular workhouse it was called the spike uh, one American who, who went there several years later was the writer Jack London he deliberately spent time in Whitechapel, fascinated by the area as he was, and he deliberately got himself admitted to the spike. Uh, and his account of life there is absolutely grim. Everyone should, should read it. It was a horrible place. So we have a sharp decline from a family of weavers that was doing well to a family of weavers who was suffering in the most appalling conditions. And then uh, it gets worse for Robert Mann. Uh, he was a little boy at this time. And by the time he was maybe 14, uh, his mother and his sister leave the workhouse. His father had already died. He is still there. And yet there is no record of the deaths of the mother or the sister. So I can only assume that Mrs. Mann had found somebody else. She either remarried or she'd found a man anyway, left the workhouse and taken her daughter with her. She did not take Robert. Why, we don't know, but we do know that as an adult, Robert suffered from fits. I suspect this is some form of epilepsy. And I suspect, too, that he would have had that all his life. As a child, I can just imagine his mother being acutely embarrassed by him, or perhaps the new man in her life was embarrassed by him, refused to have young Robert uh, coming to live with them. So Robert stays put in the workhouse. He's been abandoned by his father, who has died. Now he's abandoned by his mother, too. And he is completely on his own. And at the age of 15, he was expected to go into the adult section of the workhouse, where life was even more ghastly than it had been for him as a kid. So he basically lived in Whitechapel his entire life, right? Yes, he did. And therefore, he would have known the area, of course, like the back of his hand. I think when you've got a, a murderer who gets away with it and can't be identified, uh, there is this element of the supernatural, isn't there? People think, my God, he must have special powers to be able to evade the, the police patrols and that kind of thing. Uh, well, you don't. You need to have a lot of luck, I'll grant you. But you also need to know the killing grounds. You need to know every twist, every turn, every alleyway. Uh, and Robert Mann did. He, he lived there all his life. By the time uh, of the Ripper murders, he's 54. Uh, and he has spent over half a century in that one very small part of London. So what does Mann do in the mortuary? What is his work? Yeah, we, we don't know exactly when he started work in, in the workhouse. I haven't been able to, to find that, but he certainly ended up there. Um, the workhouse, the mortuary itself no longer exists. Like, like many of the, of the um, Ripper buildings, it's gone. It would have been very small. It would have been a, a brick-built building, uh, separate from the workhouse, in fact. It's maybe two, three hundred yards away from the main building. Uh, and um, his job would have been to lay out corpses, 
to wash corpses to remove their clothes. Uh, he would have uh, fetched and carried for the doctors uh, who were carrying out the autopsies, uh, and he would have um, uh, transported the bodies for burial. Uh, if they were poor, as most of them were, then they would have been buried in a, a common grave nearby. There's one just off Baker's Row, in fact. Uh, and um, he, he would have been a, a general dog's body. Um, he had at least one co-worker, uh, we don't know if he had any friends as such, but this, this one man did work with him. So there was a pair of them, but we know there were times when man was, was working on his own. We also know that he was eventually trusted sufficiently to be able to go out into the uh, community to bring corpses back. For example, if a body was found lying in the street, then uh, the police would be notified and rather than handling it themselves, they would send for Robert Mann from the workhouse who would come and collect the body on a cart and take it back to the mortuary. So Annie Millwood is eventually released, right? But she doesn't live long after no, no, she doesn't. The, 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 this is the trouble. With, with the, the Victorian middle class didn't like talking about uh, sex in any shape or form. Uh, they didn't really want to admit that prostitution was a, a serious problem uh, in the UK, but it was. Uh, so girls like her were known as unfortunates or ladies of the night or scarlet sisters. Uh, and um, th they are a, a very, very sad group. Uh, we don't know much about her either. She would have drifted in and out of the news very briefly. There may possibly have been a tiny two-line statement in, in the local papers in the East End, but, but that's all. Uh, and because she wasn't a victim of Jack, of course, then she didn't even gain that notoriety. So she, she fades. Her, her only role, I think, in the river story is that I believe that she was that trigger just by by seeing the mutilation, seeing the wounds that had been carried out by that gang. That is is what made Robert Mann tick. That's what made him fascinated. That's what made him need to follow through and carry out the same kind of attack himself. You you state in your book that she had been cut over thirty times. Yep. Um, an awful lot of men carried knives, as they still do. Uh, I, I don't know what it's like in the, in the States, but London is notorious as a centre of knife crime still. Uh, and it always has been. There's nothing new at all about this. Um, and the gangs that operated in the East End uh, carried cudgels, they carried clubs about uh, 18 inches long, uh, not unlike the Functions and clubs carried by the police, in fact, uh, and they carried knives, uh, chivs, they were usually called. Uh, and so uh, if you fell foul of a, a gang like that, then th they were likely to, to carry out a, a knife attack uh, and mutilations. In the case of the Whitechapel murders, starting with Martha Tabram, uh, then we are talking uh, about mutilations, which are usually to the abdomen, to the genitals. Right. So speaking of, of Martha Tabram, you believe that she was his first victim, right? 
Yes, I do. You you mentioned the canonical five a minute ago. Perhaps I should explain this a lot. These are the five victims who everybody has assumed for a very long time were the only five victims of Jack. Uh, and this comes from an assumption, and that's all it was. It, it was guesswork uh, of Melville McNaughton, who became assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police in 1891. Now, that's three years after these murders took place. All right, he would have talked to, to men who were on the case. He would have read all the files available at the time. Uh, but the five are still guesswork. And I think uh, Jack killed two more than those five. And I think his first murder was Martha Tabram. Uh, and I think that we have a kind of weird action replay of Annie Millwood here. I think Robert Mann was out and about on the 7th of August, 1888. It was a Tuesday, uh, late at night. Um, and he walked down George Yard now, if I, I can tell you that at the time, George Yard was called by the locals Shit Alley. You've got some idea what this place was like. It was foul. It was very narrow, very dark. Street lighting was very poor. And I think Robert Mann, while walking down this road, saw Martha Tabram coming towards him. Uh, and she was bleeding from umpteen cuts, in fact, 19 of them. It transpired once an autopsy was, was carried out. So here we have another Annie Millwood, and she's right there in front of Robert Mann. And I think Robert Mann basically finished off the job that somebody else had started. We know that Martha Tabham went into George Yard with a soldier. Uh, and that a soldier in those days still wore uniform all the time. And they would have carried bayonets. Even when they weren't carrying their, their rifles, they carried the bayonet that fitted on the end. They wore it in a belt at their, at their hip. I think what happened was that the soldier had a row with Martha, almost certainly over the money she was charging for her services. He drew this bayonet and stabbed her in the chest. Now that would probably have killed her anyway, but it was the wound and it was the blood that excited Robert Mann. He was carrying a knife too. It would have been just a little pocket knife, much smaller blade than a bayonet. Uh, and he was the one who actually inflicted those 19 wounds. In other words, they weren't there already, as the police assumed. And they weren't put there by the man who had used the central wound to the chest. So the bayonet wound was carried out by one person and the superficial cuts by somebody else. And that somebody else was Robert Mann. And he would see her not long after in the mortuary. This is right. Of the, of the seven victims, um, three of them ended up in that mortuary because of where they died. Uh, and uh, this, I think, is, is a, a very important clue that serial killers like to relive their crime. They do this in a variety of ways. Sometimes if they bury a body and the body isn't found, they will return to that corpse. Uh, or they will take trophies away from the body with them. Uh, but something to, to relive the thrill of the kill, which is what it's all about. It's not about sex per se. It's about power. It's about control. It's about ending somebody's life. And man would have been able to relive that simply because he had Martha Tabram uh, and two of the others in his mortuary. 
and you could have spent a great deal of time with them on his own. Nobody was going to interrupt. Nobody was going to interfere. He was the mortuary attendant. He knew what he was doing, and they let him carry on. We will be back after a brief break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And we have returned. So how would that have worked? Would he have been able to slip in and out of his workplace without being seen? Yeah, this bothered me for, for quite a time. And then uh, I read an account uh, of what the workhouse w- was like. Certainly by the time Jack London was there, and I think it had been like it for several years beforehand, the wall at the back was very broken down. There was a yard inside it. And the whole uh, workhouse would have been guarded by workhouse staff, um, the equivalent, I suppose, of prison officers. And those prison officers would have known man perfectly well. They knew that he was called for at various times, that he would go out looking for bodies that he'd been told were were lying in a particular street or square, uh, and he'd bring them back. So it wouldn't be surprising for man to be out at all hours of the night. Um, And with that yard at the back being so crumbly and weak, I think he'd been able to squeeze his way out of there largely unnoticed. So he did still live in the workhouse during the time of the murders, right? Yes, he did. It, it was, although he went out in search of work from time to time, we know, for example, he spent a certain number of months, and I don't know how many, in Wentworth Street, which is uh, about a quarter of a mile away, uh, in, in a DOS house there. Um, essentially, the workhouse was his home, yes. 
So in a way, he had two homes. He had um, the workhouse itself, where he would have slept in a dormitory with other men. Uh, and he had the mortuary, which was his lair. And, and that was really the heart of man's life. If you read accounts of, I mentioned him already, but uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, he uh, cut people's heads off and put them in his fridge. And his his apartment was very much like man's mortuary. It was somewhere where he felt safe, somewhere where he felt secure, along with the dead, with those heads in his fridge for that read Martha Tabum and co. on the slab in man's mortuary. So a few weeks later, right, on August 31st, you believe he encountered Mary Ann Nichols. Yes, um, and this is the first of the canonical five. Polly Nichols uh, was murdered in what was then called Bucks Row. They've changed the name of it now. It's now Derwood Street. Uh, and um, this was different, whereas George Yard was very narrow. And in fact, Martha's body was found on a landing on some stairs. So I think probably man chased her up those stairs. Um, Polly Nichols w- was found uh, lying on the pavement, but it was just outside um, some stable gates. Brown's stable yard. Uh, you must realize that in 1888, uh, there were still no motor vehicles. Uh, everybody either walks if they're poor uh, or they have horse-drawn transport. So there were stables all over the place. And I think what Robert Mann is trying to do is to recreate the mortuary. He wants that small, confined space. Martha Tabram died in a small, confined space on a stair landing. Polly Nichols should have died in a small confined space inside a stable yard. But the stable yard was locked and man couldn't get in. So he killed her there on the pavement in the open. It was a very high risk crime, but serial killers are risk takers. I should point out, by the way, that bearing in mind what Whitechapel was like at the time, there was never a time when the streets are completely deserted. Uh, people would be going to work at four o'clock in the morning. They didn't leave the public houses and brothels until maybe one or two in the morning. So there's a very small time frame for these murders to, to be carried out. And at any time, of course, uh, man could have been uh, interrupted. So he would have killed her and then headed back to work, right? Yes. And would he have needed to clean himself, do you think? You see, I, this is one of the myths of, of, the, of the Ripper, that, that because of the mutilations carried out, the murderer would have to be covered in blood. This is what the police thought at the time. So they were literally looking for somebody covered in blood probably a dribbling maniac because they assumed that only a rabid lunatic could commit crimes like this. Because Robert Mann officiated at autopsies and because he would almost certainly have listened to doctors talking about what they were doing, he would have been aware of blood patterns. He would have been aware of arteries and he would have stood in a position so that he didn't get himself covered in blood. Polly Nichols was attacked from behind, as all the others were, after Martha Tabram, and her throat was cut. 
Now, there is no way in which the murderer would cover himself in blood if he's standing behind somebody whose throat he has just cut. The blood would spray out at the front of the body and the murderer is completely untouched. So, yes, he would have had to do a certain amount of cleaning up, but not all that many. And the mutilations on Polly were not anywhere near as vicious as they were in later crimes. For those who believe that Charles Cross slash... Charles Lechmere was was Jack the Ripper. This is the murder, right, that people point to. Yeah, Charles Cross was was one of the men who who found the body. We we, we call them in in Britain the first finders, and this is a very old phrase. You you find it in medieval society too, uh, or in Christopher Marlowe's time in the in the sixteenth century. And so the, the first finder is always a, a, a suspect. How come that person found the body? Did they know where to find the body because they put the body there themselves? Charles Cross was on his way to work at half past five in the morning. He did that every day. Uh, and it was he who literally stumbled over the body of Polly Nichols. That was sheer chance. Uh, and I think that he has nothing to do with the death at all. Uh, so was man there during the autopsies? Does he help the doctors at all during their examinations? No, I don't think man would have been there. I think he got the hell out as quickly as he could and, and gone back to the workhouse. Uh, the doctor comes along. The, the, the sequence of events is that Cross found the body, uh, summoned the, the police. They, they patrolled, uh, often in pairs, sometimes singly. And um, in those days, they still used wooden rattles to um, summon assistance. That was replaced very soon afterwards by whistles that they blew. Uh, but then, they had wooden rattles which make a loud clacking noise, you really can't miss it, uh, to, to, to summon more support. Back up, as we'd say today, I suppose. Uh, and so uh, the police would have come running. They'd have seen the woman was dead. They weren't aware of the severity of her wounds because her clothes covered her body. But they knew her throat had been cut. They knew she was dead. Uh, and they sent for the police surgeon. He'd have come along, having been woken up uh, at some ungodly hour and pronounced her dead. And then uh, they'd have got a cart to take the body to the mortuary. And this is where Robert Mann comes in. That's his job. He takes bodies to mortuaries. So at Mary Ann Nichols' inquest, Mann testifies. Why is he called to the witness stand? Okay, the, the situation is that in, in the case of any uh, suspicious death, which this clearly was, there has to be a coroner's inquest. And this is supposed to happen usually within 24 hours of the body being found. It doesn't always work quite as neatly as that, but they do the best they can. Um, now, there are special buildings for, for these things. Then uh, there wasn't. You just hold them anywhere. They were often in public houses, in, in pubs, because pubs were uh, well-known and they had large rooms. Anybody could uh, attend these, uh, and uh, the coroner himself would uh, ask for a number of witnesses, anybody connected in whatever way uh, with the deceased. Now, obviously, Robert Mann, ha having wheeled her into the um, mortuary, was connected with the deceased. So were various uh, policemen. So was Charles Cross, who found her. Uh, and so they were all um, interrogated by the coroner. Yeah. Are you able to glean any insight about Mann's character from his testimony? 
he he does seem to be very diffident. He's shy. Sounds a bit pathetic, really. Makes him sound like Bambi, you know. But um, he he, I suspect because of his lowly position, you you've got to remember that uh, the UK far more so then than today uh, was incredibly hierarchical. It's full of snobs. You've got the queen at the top, you've got the aristocracy, the nobility, you've got the gentry, and so it goes right down to the bottom. And at the bottom would have been people like Robert Mann. He is a workhouse pauper. He has no status, no standing whatsoever. He happens to do a ghastly job simply because somebody has to do it in a mortuary, but nobody takes him seriously, nobody is much interested, and he comes across very badly. He mumbles, he stumbles, the coroner can't hear what he's saying. And at some point uh, during these inquests, one of the coroners said that you couldn't actually believe anything that Robert Mann said because of the fits he suffered from. Now, if you think about that, that is a terrific way out. It puts him below the radar. It's saying this man is so insignificant, we needn't worry about him at all, which is fine if he was just a mortuary attendant. But if he is a serial killer who is terrorizing the East End of London, then that's a get out of jail free card, isn't it? Nobody is going to pester him. Nobody is going to ask him questions because they know he's going to talk rubbish, which is what he had done pretty well in the inquest. So Annie Chapman's murder is next. Yeah, it's it's the following week. It's the 8th of September when Annie Chapman is found. She was known as Dark Annie. An awful lot of these women had nicknames and aliases. So Mary Ann Nichols is Polly Nichols. Annie Chapman is, is Dark Annie and so on. And she was found in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. Uh, I'd like to tell you that Hanbury Street uh, is unchanged, but that simply wouldn't be true. Ironically, the houses across the road from 29 are more or less as they were, but where 29 once stood is now a huge wall of a modern brewery. I know, I've walked these streets some teen times trying to find these places, and believe me, that's murder in itself. Um, <laughs> but what happened was that um, Robert uh, met her outside number 29, and um, they arranged business. Traditionally, prostitutes would say something like, are you good-natured, dairy? Um, in other words, do you want my services? Uh, and she took him uh, in this narrow passageway um, through 29 Hanbury Street to the yard at the back. She obviously knew this place well. This was her, her patch. Uh, there were three steps down into the yard. There was a privy, a toilet, um, in the far corner. It was very small. There was a fence all the way around it. And Robert Mann killed her and mutilated her there. And as it was with Polly Nichols, Mann sees Annie Chapman's body in his official capacity 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so we have a grim action replay. He he can enjoy uh, the the fruits of, of his work. And what is noticeable with uh, each of these killings is that the mutilations are increasing each time, and this is is very typical of uh, these blitz type serial killers uh, that they grow in confidence. Um, they take more and more risks. They carry out worse mutilations, which probably takes them longer than the last time. Uh, this is, is very standard practice. And there are a number of things in connection with Annie Chapman that uh, became furrow really, urban legend. One is that um, a, a row of coins was placed neatly between her feet. Uh, well, they weren't. They were simply coins that fell out of her pocket. Uh, when man killed her, that they weren't arranged neatly, they simply fell. The other one was the famous leather apron, which was found at the scene of the crime. Uh, and uh, for quite a time, the police followed this as a real lead. Had the murderer left his apron behind? Did he use the apron when he cut up Annie Chapman? A leather apron would give good protection to his clothes. It just so happened that there was a local, a man named John Pizer, who lived in the area, whose nickname was Leather Apron because he wore one. He was a shoesmith, so naturally he wore one of these things uh, in, in his day job. As a shoesmith, he also carried sharp knives. So he, he seemed perfect. And the local crowd grabbed him, dragged him from his premises a couple of days after Annie Chapman's murder and threatened to lynch him. They, they were going to just string him up to the nearest lamppost. The police literally saved his life, rescued him from the mob. It turned out that the leather apron had nothing to do either with John Pizer or with uh, Annie Chapman. It belonged to one of the inhabitants of 29 Hanbury Street who had washed the apron the night before and put it out in the yard to dry. And this kind of thing happens all the time in, in murder cases. Casual bits of debris left lying about, which have nothing to do with the murder whatsoever. Right. So man testifies again in Annie Chapman's inquest. Yes, yes, he does. And we have an action replay of what we've, we've seen before. Um, eventually, I think they, they stopped asking him because uh, there wasn't much point. He was he was vague, um, he giggled, he behaved a little bit strangely. There was a suggestion that either he uh, or his assistant had stolen rings from uh, Annie Chapman's fingers, but nothing was ever proved. Uh, but this was what mortuary attendants did. I mean, they, they, they weren't paid as such, um, and those who were were paid an absolute pittance. So it was tradition to help yourself to any goods, equipment that some um, murder victim m might have. The only odd thing, perhaps, is that the coins at Annie's feet were still there. N nobody seemed to have helped themselves to those. This, the stacked coins, right? People who believe in a conspiracy theory involving Freemasons. They, they talk about those 
coins. Oh, <laughs> how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we, the, the trouble is we don't know exactly the, the pattern that the coins appeared in. Some accounts say that they were spread out neatly, uh, flat on the ground. Some accounts say that they were stacked uh, in a certain order. Others, they were simply scattered at random. Scattered at random makes most sense to me. But once you factor in uh, elements like the Freemasons, uh, then you've got all kinds of symbolism, which to me is one gigantic red herring. Uh, and certainly we can introduce that later if, if you like. Sure, sure. So one of the notable things about this inquest is Coroner Baxter's testimony, mm -hmm. which becomes the catalyst for the mad doctor theory. Yes. Um, when Baxter is, I, I, I don't know, when, when I look at cases like this, I, I have pictures uh, of these people in, in my head. Sometimes we have actual pictures of them. We know what when Baxter looked like, guy with huge dundrearies, as you called them in the States then, their side whiskers. And he is one of the better, one of the more sensible people. Uh, but it, it is uh, out of this inquest that the idea comes that whoever uh, the murderer is must have medical knowledge because of the mutilation that was carried out. Uh, because without being too, too graphic, um, various parts uh, of Annie's intestines have been deliberately cut, were removed from the body, draped over her shoulder. She lay on the ground. Bearing in mind that this was carried out, it was almost daybreak by, by this time, but the light would have been very limited and the killer would have been working in a hurry in case he was interrupted. There were actually 17 people living in 29 Hanbury Street. Any one of them could have opened the window and looked down at any minute uh, on what he was doing. So he had to work quickly. Uh, and therefore, Baxter and others said, well, look, this really has got to be a medical person. Who else could carry out this kind of mutilation unless they had a medical background? Now, immediately, of course, every doctor in London was up in arms. It's not one of us. It can't possibly be. Doctors don't behave like that. We've taken the Hippocratic Oath. And the first part of that is do no harm. First, do no harm. So it couldn't be a doctor, and that was rubbish. And literally, from the murder of Annie Chapman up to today, we are still arguing as to how much, if any, medical knowledge the killer had. Right. So Polly Nichols and Annie Chapman, they were killed near the workhouse infirmary, which was why they were taken there, of course. Mm -hmm. But the next two murders... They take place farther away. This is right. In fact, one of them did end up with man, as it happened, and she really shouldn't have. I don't understand how that took place, but it, it did. The double event is quite fascinating because it, two um, women were killed on the same night. Uh, this is the 29th to 30th of September. Now, it's possible, of course, there were two killers in the East End that night. It's possible that Elizabeth Stride, who was the first victim, uh, was killed by one man, and Catherine Eddowes, the second victim, was killed by another. I, I find that unlikely. Uh, it's a hell of a coincidence, if you think about it. There were something like half a million people 
living in the East End of London at the time, uh, but even to find one serial killer there, never mind two, uh, operating uh, in that very, very small area it, it is a bit hard to swallow. So I think we're talking about the same killer. And what happened um, in a nutshell is this. Elizabeth Stride was, um, just as a kind of footnote, the tallest of all these victims. She was five foot seven. All the others were five foot two, five foot three. And she was Swedish. She married a man named Stride earlier, hence the surname. She was actually Elizabeth Gustav's daughter. And um, she operated as a prostitute in Sweden before she came to England. She met Jack uh, in Dutchfield's Yard, which again is a very narrow, confined space uh, off Berners Street, a little bit further south than Jack had struck so far, but still within the Whitechapel um, confines. There was no mutilation this time. He was attacked almost certainly from behind, um, partially strangled, and then her throat was cut. And then we think what happened is that Jack was interrupted. A travelling salesman in, in the States then, you, you called them drummers, he turned up with his horse and cart, drove the horse and cart into Dutfield's yard, and the horse saw something lying on the ground in front of it, shied, um, and Louis Deemschutz, who was the, the driver, uh, hauls the rein, stops it, gets down, sees that it is it's a woman, the blood still pouring from her neck, and he runs up uh, stairs nearby to the uh, working men's club, of which he is a member. They're having a kind of drink up there. Uh, it's only half past 12 uh, at, at, at night. It's not late by Whitechapel standards at all. And I think while he's gone to get help, Jack is hiding behind the gates uh, through which the pony and trap had just come. He dashes out. Then what does he do? He knows that people are onto him. So uh, we have a situation where one woman is dead. Elizabeth Stride has just had her throat cut, but there are no mutilations. That's because the murder is interrupted. What does he do? He comes out of Dutfield Yard and he runs. He can either go right or left, and I don't know which way he went. It doesn't really matter, because we know where he ended up. And he ended up in Mitre Square. Now, this is in a different part of London entirely. It's only about uh, half an hour's walk from Dutchfield's Yard, but it is in a different police jurisdiction. There are actually two police forces in London still. One is the Metropolitan Police, far better known. The other is the City Police Force. And the next victim died in the City Police Force's jurisdiction. This is Mitre Square. Still there, and there are three ways in and out of it, all very narrow. And the woman who Jack met in that square was Catherine Eddowes. Like the others, she was in her 40s. Like the others, she was a prostitute. And like the others, Jack killed her. And this time, she, he carried out much more serious mutilations. Uh, he gashed her ears. He gashed her eyelids. He carved uh, a V shape into each cheek. Uh, he removed one of her kidneys. Uh, he removed her ovaries. And then he runs. He goes back home, basically, back to Whitechapel. So he's heading east. Now, he carried out these mutilations in the space of less than 15 minutes 
between police patrols, which we know were in the area at the time. The second police patrol, of course, came upon the body of Kate Eddowes. Back again after these messages. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. And we are back for a final time. The witnesses that report seeing something, someone, in the minutes before Liz Stride is killed, it's, it's always a little confusing to me uh, because the reports are quite different. <laughs> it's incredibly confusing. I, I, I'm not surprised you find it so. Yeah, um, you've got to factor in that we have different accounts and different people. And we as human beings make the most terrible eyewitnesses to events. 
if if you and I were sitting in the same room and somebody ran in and sprayed the wall with machine gun bullets and you and I were both unhurt and the police asked us to describe that person, I guarantee we would give them different versions. They would more or less tally, but they would be different in a, in a variety of ways, uh, especially in moments of shock. Uh, we don't respond well. We don't see things as they actually are. We misremember events all the time. So we've got three or four people who saw Liz Stride having a row with a man just before she died. Um, they just bought grapes from uh, a, a greengrocer uh, who was selling vegetables and fruit nearby. Uh, and um, they were having this row in public and the man hit Liz Stride, knocked her over. She went down on the pavement. Is that the man who killed her? I don't think so, because another man said that he saw him walk away. Yet a third man said that he saw somebody standing nearby lighting a pipe. He remembers the match. He remembers his face being lit up by the flare of the match. And yet a third eyewitness talks about uh, another man who shouted Lipsky at him. Lipsky was an anti-Jewish term. Uh, there were 95% of the population of Whitechapel were Jewish, mostly from Eastern Europe. They hadn't been in London long. Uh, many of them didn't speak English at all. Uh, they were suspicious of police and, and really didn't want to help anybody with anything. And they kept low profiles. Now, whether the man who had the row with Stride has any connection with her death, whether Pipe Man has any connection with her death, whether Lipsky has any connection with her death, we don't know. I strongly suspect that these are all red herrings uh, and that uh, Robert Mann uh, was there too and may well have witnessed all this, but he doesn't feature in the official record. So if Robert Mann was indeed Jack the Ripper, he would have definitely been outside of his killing zone. He, he would, and that would have made him feel extremely uncomfortable. I, I think he was seriously rattled by the arrival of Louis, Louis Schutz and, and his horse and cart. He didn't expect that, and he hadn't, of course, carried out his mutilations, which is what his kind of killing is all about. He would have felt frustrated. He would have felt thwarted. He would have felt an incredible compulsion to finish the job, to kill again and make sure that he carried out uh, complete mutilations, which is why the mutilations of Edo's are so much worse than anything we've seen before. So you believe that Robert Mann cut off a piece of Catherine Edo's apron and then used it to wipe off his hands? I, I, I do. The, 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 the apron, and again, <laughs> nothing to do with leather apron. It's very confusing. This was a cloth apron and it definitely belonged to Kate Eddowes. Um, he did cut that off um, with his knife. He did take it away with him. And it was found in a drain, uh, not very far away, in a place called Goulston Street. Um, th these faucets, as you call them, taps as we call them, uh, were all over the place. They provided uh, water for the locals. Uh, and uh, so he would have washed his hands uh, in that uh, faucet uh, and he, he dropped the apron there. The interesting thing about that, of course, is another piece of urban legend, um, something that the police found right next to that stained apron, uh, written on the wall in chalk, 
was a phrase which is still disputed today. We don't know exactly the form of words, but it said something like, the Jews are not the men who will be blamed for nothing. Now, if you think about that, the Jews are not the men who will be blamed for nothing. There are so many negatives in there, it becomes hellish confusing, doesn't it? What does the sentence actually mean? And does that have anything to do with the murder of Kate Eddowes or any of the other murders for that matter? We have no idea. It may be that somebody is saying, I hate the Jews, they're guilty of everything. I don't want Jews in in my backyard. Uh, There's not necessarily any connection with the killings, whatever. Right, right. So the murder of Mary Kelly, the final canonical five victim. Have you found anything that that connects her to Robert Mann? No, and I wish I could. Um, Mary Kelly is, is... always the most fascinating simply because she is considerably younger than the others and she was the only one to die indoors. Again, um, her home has long gone. Uh, It was at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street. Now it's a a multi-storey car park and uh, she died on um, the 9th of November. This was uh, actually the the night, just before the 9th. 9th of November was Lord Mayor's Day in in London. It was a big uh, party, big festivals. There were were parades of the the mayor and uh, just about anybody who was anybody would have attended that. So shortly before that took place, in the wee small hours, Jack met Mary Kelly and she took him back to her room. It was very small, it measured 12 feet by 12 feet and she owed three months rent. So the person who found her body was a rent collector, uh, Jack Bowyer. He called up the next day, uh, banged on the door, got no reply. He looked through the little grubby window and saw her body on the bed. Now this was the worst mutilation of all and because of that uh, an awful lot of people including Melville McNaughton, with his canonical five, thought that this was the last murder, uh, after which something happened, which meant that uh, uh, the, the murderer wouldn't strike again. Experts reckon it took two hours to carry out the mutilations. Uh, the, and this was the first instance in which the police photographed the body in situ. We have photographs of all the other women, but they were taken at uh, the mortuary. Three times, of course, Robert Mann's mortuary. Uh, so he probably would have been present at those uh, photographs uh, as well. But in this case, they, they were taken at Miller's Court in the room. Uh, one is looking from her door, looking at the body, and she's got her head, as it were, turned towards us. Uh, the other one is taken from the other side of, of the body, looking towards the door. Apparently there was a third, but that hasn't survived, and I don't know which angle that was taken from. Uh, Her breast had been cut off, one of them was found under the body. Her face was mutilated beyond recognition. You you can't see uh, any features whatsoever. Uh, Her uh, uterus has been removed, her genitals uh, have been slashed, and for the first time her heart was removed. What happened to that? We don't know. Um, except that, I think we do, because Kelly, uh, along with Eddowes, they were two of those who went with uh, went to Robert Mann's mortuary, where, of course, he would have had access to preservative, which he would have seen 
the doctor's using, and he would know that he would be able to keep these items, Kate Edo's kidney, uh, Mary Kelly's heart, uh, in solutions for as long as he wanted to. You said he was 54, right, during the time of the killings? This, this is the biggest problem with, with putting Robert Mann in the frame, his age. Um, nowadays, experts on, on serial killers, whether they're the FBI or, or in individuals, psychoanalysts, whatever, they usually say that serial killers start to kill in their 20s uh, and continue throughout the 30s, by which time they've usually been caught or in one or two cases have committed suicide. For Robert Mann to start killing at the age of 53-4 is very late. But of course, there are always exceptions to rules. And what we don't know is whether he carried out any crimes before Martha Tabron. I am assuming Annie Millwood was the trigger that led to all this. But what if it wasn't? What if there were earlier examples? Violence in the East End was very common. Prostitutes were being murdered all the time. Never like this. Never with the mutilations and the throat cutting. That was a, a, a distinctive pattern. But is that something that Robert Mann grew into later? What do you think his, his motive would have been? His mummy. It's always the mother. The mother did it. <laughs> um, if you look at the ages of these women, with, with the one exception of Mary Kelly, they are all in their 40s. That would have been the age at which Robert Mann's mother abandoned him. She left him in the workhouse. She left him on his own to all the horrors of that terrible place. As far as we know, she never came back. As far as we know, she never had any dealings with him again. So in, in killing these women, what Robert Mann is doing is actually killing his mother. And I know it sounds like psycho. And I know it sounds like Norman Bates, but <laughs> Norman Bates and Psycho are based on reality, that they are based on events that actually did happen. Uh, and it is a, a very, very common theme among serial killers. It's, it's a mother fixation, a mother hatred. So you do write some about Alice McKenzie. Alice McKenzie died on the 17th of July, 1889. So it's nine months after the, the Kelly murder. Um, she was a prostitute. She was middle-aged. So we're, we're back to the usual pattern. And um, she was found in, in a place called Castle Alley. Again, a very narrow, confined space. Um, a body jammed between two carts. So an even smaller space. Mutilations were the same for throat cut and um, abdominal mutilations, but they're not as severe as we saw in the case of Kelly, Eddowes, um, or even Chapman. And I think that is because Robert Mann is not well. And I think that there is this big gap between Kelly and Mackenzie for the same reason. He didn't actually die until 1896, but he died uh, of what was then uh, diagnosed as I can't even say this word, phthisis, which is tuberculosis, basically, lung complaint. And this is something that doesn't kill quickly at all. It can take years to kill you, and it leaves you weak and exhausted. And I don't think he was physically well enough to go out on his uh, nightly raids after Mary Kelly. I think he became ill. 
I think he started coughing up blood. Uh, I think the doctors in the workhouse would have told him to stay put and not take on too much. Don't go looking for any more bodies. Don't don't bring us any more corpses back um, because you're not up to it. Uh, and uh, I think he fought against the urges that he must have felt for as long as he could until July 89, when he cracked and killed uh, Alice McKenzie, clay pipe Alice, as she was known, because she smoked a clay pipe. After that, of course, his tuberculosis got worse. Uh, his, his cough increases, he loses weight, uh, and again, he is simply too weak to carry out the, the kind of physical attacks that, that he does. Uh, assuming that the Whitechapel murderer is male, we know his victims were all female, we know that they were generally smaller than he would have been, it still takes an awful lot of physical strength to kill somebody in the way that Jack did. And I don't think, uh, after Mary Kelly, that Robert Mann was up to it anymore. Were you able to, to find a physical description for Robert Mann, height, build, etc.? No, nothing at all. I, I wish we did. I, I tried desperately to find some kind of photograph, uh, e even drawing, which would have helped. There are drawings of the um, uh, mortuary itself. There are drawings of various doctors uh, who would have carried out autopsies in the building, who would have worked with man alongside them. But I, I could find nothing physically about him whatsoever. Unfortunately, what has happened is that he has become uh, a kind of geriatric almost, uh, which is, I think, totally wrong, giving a false impression. I mention in, in my book, uh, another book that I've got, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with because it's so iconic. Uh, it's the graphic novel from Hell. Uh, it's a very, very fat one, and it's fascinating in its own right. But it shows um, Robert Mann as a, a, a senile grandfather. He looks well into his 70s, and, and he has a, a, a fit right there in the mortuary in front of doctors and policemen, which, as far as we know, never happened. Now, Robert Mann was not that old. He was 54, which is simply middle-aged. He is old by serial killer standards, but he's not old. Uh, and unfortunately, um, from hell, great though it is, is so iconic that everybody uh, who's read that thinks, oh, yes, Robert Mann is just uh, an old geezer, as they would have said at the time. Uh, and uh, we can ignore him. He, he wouldn't have been able to carry out these crimes. On the contrary, he could. So FBI agent John Douglas's Jack the Ripper profile which he produced in the late 1980s. How does it compare to what you learned about Robert Mann? Yes, John Douglas of the FBI at Quantico was, was asked to produce a, a, a psychological profile of Jack in 1988, centenary of the murders. And um, the, it's extremely good. As, as a, a, a profile goes, the problem is that we know so little about man that it's, it's, it's very difficult uh, to be accurate on this one, to, to see how the, the pattern fits. Uh, Douglas uh, says that he was a loner, 
which uh, the, the, the murderer was a loner, which I think uh, Man almost certainly was. As, as I said, he had one co-worker. We don't know if that man was a friend or not. We have no idea about his family at all after uh, his father died and his mother and sister left him. Uh, we know he wasn't married, so there was no wife uh, in his life. About his relationships, uh, we don't know uh, whether he frequented prostitutes regularly or not at all. We, we just have, have no idea. I believe he had mother issues, which is what uh, Douglas says an awful lot of, of serial killers do, uh, because she abandoned him in, in the workhouse. Uh, the fits that he had, we don't know what type they were, but if it was temporal lobe epilepsy, which it seems as if it may have been, 79% of serial killers today suffer from that. Uh, which I think is astonishingly high. In the community in general, it's only 10%, but among serial killers, 79%. He had access to murder weapons. The mortuary would have been full of knives. Nowadays, again, times have changed, and the kind of scalpels that are used in post-mortems, as they are in surgery on, on live people, are used once and thrown away. Uh, they weren't then. Surgeons had their own favourite scalpels and knives uh, that they used. They were washed and then put back on a rack for use next time. So man had access to those. He was, therefore, um, halfway between uh, a disorganised and an organised killer in Douglas's terms. A disorganized killer is one who will suddenly act on impulse. He will see a victim, he will attack the victim regardless of consequences and kill them. This is in broad daylight, it's in public. He takes his chance and he runs. An organized killer will plan, he will stalk, uh, he will hunt a particular victim, a particular type that he likes, he will bring a weapon with him and he'll take it away from the scene. He will kill that person somewhere secret uh, where it's unlikely he'll be disturbed. A classic case would be Ted Bundy. He liked girls with long, straight, dark hair. Uh, he persuaded them to get into his car because he had a damaged arm. Once he was in the car, again, you see, a confined space, he killed them. So man falls between those two. He is disorganized in the sense that he kills in public. I won't say in broad daylight because all the murders took place in the dark. But he kills in the open. But he must have had a knife with him. Uh, and that knife was not found at the scene, so he must have taken it away with him. So he is half organised and half disorganised. He had medical knowledge, which Douglas agrees he must have had. Uh, and uh, this was because, of course, he worked in the workhouse and had seen the doctors carrying out the various incisions, uh, opening bodies up, removing organs. He knew exactly where to find a heart, exactly where to find an ovary, and so on. And really, because we don't know enough about the, the man himself, that's uh, as far as we can go. Uh, it's frustrating, and it perhaps doesn't take us all that far. But my God, it takes us a damn sight nearer than some of the other ideas that have been put forward uh, for, for Jack. Uh, the Freemasonry idea, the, the highest in the land, it's connected with the royal family. Um, we have mad Russian agents being sent over by, by the Tsar's government. Uh, it just gets sillier and sillier. 
Whereas Robert Mann is in the right place. He knows the area like the back of his hand. He's the right social class. He may have had mother issues, which may have been the motivation in the first place. A lot of it fits. Not all of it, I agree. But enough for me. As you mentioned earlier, one of the things that doesn't fit, Douglas thought the murderer would have been a man in his late 20s. Yep, that's right. The, the, the problem with Douglas's profile is that it's based on the FBI's experience in a different historical period. In other words, now, pretty well. Um, or at least the, the 1960s, 70s, 80s, a century after Jack. Does that make any difference? I don't know. He's also basing it on American experience of American serial killers. Does that make any difference? I don't know that either. It's a fascinating question. I, I know an awful lot of Americans, including your good gentleman self, uh, and I've spent a lot of time talking to them, and, and we, we have debates about the, the cultural differences between your country and mine. Uh, and you could talk all night about that, because it's a, it's a fascinating subject. But how that impinges on serial killers, I honestly don't know. Are we saying that serial killers are in their 20s and 30s in America in the 20th century? And were they therefore always that in the past, elsewhere? We don't know. Yeah, good point. So off the subject of of man for a moment, uh, I do want to go back just briefly to the, the Freemason conspiracies. There is a belief by some that the murders were related to the occult. And the way the murder locations look on the map, some claim that they form the shape of a cross. Yeah. Um, when I um, produced this book, I, I, I worked with a, a television company called Atlantic. And uh, we produced a, a program that appeared on the Discovery Channel. Uh, and I was working with uh, an expert geoprofiler. Uh, and this geoprofiling is actually better known as murder mapping. Uh, and uh, what geoprofilers do is to study murder sites. They look at the pattern that exists, where victims are found, especially when those victims are found where they were murdered. Obviously, it's more difficult if someone is is killed in one place and carried um, several miles away. That that changes the whole dynamic. But in the case of of, uh, Robert Mann, we know that he killed these women where they were found. And so we have a particular pattern which emerges there. Uh, For example, if you take the mortuary, then the nearest I, I simply I have a map in front of me from my book which shows the canonical five, not Martha Tabru and Alice Mackenzie, although they too would fit within the pattern, of course. So from the uh, mortuary, the nearest uh, murder site is that of Polly Nichols, and this is absolutely right. Serial killers will kill in their strongest comfort zone. In other words, the area they know best. And around the corner, basically, from Baker's Row is Bucks Row, where Polly Nichols died. You then move a little bit further west 
to uh, Hanbury Street where Annie Chapman was killed. And we're talking about less than a quarter of a mile. Uh, we're then moving south to Berners Street, Duckfields Yard, where Elizabeth Stride died. This is still about three quarters of a mile from the mortuary. Now, Stride, of course, changes the whole thing because uh, Jack was interrupted. He panics uh, and he hurries west, escaping police patrols. Who knows? He can't take a chance of being caught. Therefore, he ends up in Mitre Square. Therefore, he's out of his comfort zone. By now, he's the best part of a mile away from the mortuary. That's why he kills and goes back. That's why he goes back via Goulston Street, leaving the bloody apron uh, by the standpipe, by the faucet, uh, because he's on his way home. Mary Kelly, uh, likewise, is killed back in the area, which was his comfort zone. And it's not in the shape of a cross at all. That is simply the nonsense dreamed up by conspiracy theorists. It's actually, I suppose, in the shape of a kind of oval, although it's terribly vague and amorphous, and uh, I don't think you can put uh, a neat shape on it at all. Serial killers don't kill to that kind of pattern. They, they don't decide to make a point. They don't decide to advertise to the world what they're doing. We are a cult, we are a secret organisation, and therefore we're going to leave these women in the shape of anything at all. Uh, it is pure hokum, pure fiction. It reads well in a novel, it looks good on a television screen, but historically it's nonsense. Right. <laughs> so it's been almost 15 years since you introduced Robert Mann as a suspect. What has been the response by experts... Ripperologists. <laughs> yes, I, I thought you, I thought you'd ask me that. When, <laughs> when you put your head over the parapet with, with, with a new Jack the Ripper, the first thing that's going to happen is that you will be bombarded with people who say you're wrong and why. I, I know an awful lot of people who have written um, on on Jack, and I, I divide them into two broad groups. One are the researchers. These are the serious historians and criminologists who know what they're talking about and have done some superlative work. Um, I, I, I can't name them all, but I'm thinking about the, the late, great Martin Fido. And I'm thinking about Paul Begg. I'm thinking about uh, John Bennett. There, there, there are a handful of them. Uh, they've all written books, um, which are all excellent. Wh whoever they have put in, in the frame doesn't really matter. The point is they have used the evidence, they've researched it thoroughly, they come out with logical conclusions. Then there are the ripperologists, uh, and these are the people who are not historians. Uh, they just love the idea of the story because it's a juicy one. We are fascinated, aren't we, by horrible murder. The more gruesome, the better. We go and watch it in the in the cinemas, uh, on our television screens. We read about it in, in fiction and true crime. We, we can't leave it alone. And as you might expect, ripologists were very quick to denounce me. They said that Robert Mann was a non-starter. 
which annoyed me, I, I, I must admit, and I, I pointed out that the non-starters were the Freemasons and the highest in the land and the mad Russian agents and uh, I don't know who else have we got. Uh, um, so many people, anybody who is, who is famous, really. Uh, Dr. Bernardo, for example, the, the, the guy who saved children from starving in the East End with his charity. Ah, he met Liz Stride once, therefore he must be Jack the Ripper. This is the nonsense. These are the non-starters. And sadly, there are books out there. Uh, Patricia Cornwell uh, spending an absolute fortune, uh, apparently, uh, to claim that the artist Walter Sickert was Jack, for which there is no evidence whatsoever. The evidence for Sickert is that he may possibly have written a couple of the Ripper letters. Uh, over 200 of these were sent to the police uh, and or to the media at the time, claiming to be by Jack or to know who Jack was. Uh, and Ms. Cornwell spent a fortune buying a couple of Sickert paintings to try and use his DNA to, to, to link him with the crime. Can't be done. Well, gosh, this has been awesome as always. I'll put links to your Amazon page in the show notes. And thank you. I appreciate your time so much. Thanks. That's absolutely great. Again, I've been speaking to MJ Tro. He is the author of Jack the Ripper, Quest for a Killer. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.